Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 296. I had a conversation with Nathan Dunlap. On December 14, 1993, a 19-year-old Nathan Dunlap entered a Chuck E. Cheese in Aurora, Colorado. He ordered some food, he played a video game, and then he went into the bathroom where he hid until closing. After the Chuck E. Cheese had closed, he came out and found several people working, and he murdered them. His victims included Sylvia Crowell, 19, Ben Grant, 17, Colleen O'Connor, 17, and store manager Marge Kohlberg, 50. He also found Bobby Stevens, 20, and shot him in the jaw. Bobby survived by playing dead and escaped. Nathan was apprehended and eventually found guilty of four counts of first-degree murder, attempted murder, and other charges. He was sentenced to death by lethal injection, and over time his execution date was postponed and eventually commuted to life without parole once uh, Colorado decided that the death penalty was unconstitutional, uh, especially in regards to teenagers. Nathan and I talked over a few days over several phone calls. Uh, the recording, of course, is not going to be as, as good as possible because it's hard to do through a phone call. You know, they don't have access to Zoom or computers or FaceTime or anything like that. So bear with me on that. I find the conversation really interesting. Nathan talks about who he is now compared to who he was then. We talk about mental illness and drug addiction, uh, victims, victims' rights. Uh, there was... As I said, this happened over a couple days because after the first set of interviews that really went on in 20-minute bursts because they're only allowed to use the payphone for a certain amount of time, that there were still a lot of questions I had that weren't answered. And I emailed Nathan through the Colorado State Penitentiary email system, and he agreed to do another follow-up. And I said, look, I've got these other questions for you regarding remorse and families of the victims and things like that that I didn't feel were being answered perhaps in the first section of conversations so uh, there may be moments where we repeat ourselves and that's why uh, I personally don't believe in the death penalty uh, I don't think it is a deterrent I think it's extraordinarily costly and I also think that kids who commit violent crimes that to put them in prison for their entire lifetime is, for me at least, insane. I think that who people are at 19 is not who they will become at 40 or 50 or whatever. And I I feel like in some cases it's easy to just decide someone is a monster. And in, perhaps in some cases, like a Ted Bundy, for example, a monster does lurk right on the surface. I think people are complicated. I, in order to talk to people who have committed heinous acts, I have to remember that I myself am capable of these acts. I mean, I've never met a person who hasn't said, I wish they were dead or, you know, have a moment on the freeway where you just want to gun somebody <laughs> off the road or, you know, just casual thoughts that are the monsters lurking within just sort of showing themselves a little bit. And I mean, that's a gross generalization, but it gets to my point that 
I think it's quite easy for us to look at certain people and say, oh, that person isn't me. There's, they're nothing like me, and therefore I condemn them to whatever thing is, whatever the condemnation is. But the fact of the matter is they're not that much different. It's We are animals at best, and sure, we grow up with moralities and religion and ethics and all that kind of stuff, but those are all real slippery, aren't they? A lot of gray in there about what a person justifies in one case and not in another. Um, so that's, for me, why it's so important to have these kinds of conversations. And again, that idea of growth. Um, Ted Bundy being a great example. I don't know that that guy had anywhere to go but down. You know, there was clearly this psychopath and I don't know enough about psychopaths to be able to comment on whether it's an, a redeemable quality. But we all know there are plenty of sociopaths in power functioning just fine in society. It's, I don't think it's healthy for us as humans to casually disregard something as binary. It just it doesn't serve anything or anyone. And I think it creates a place where we can't see our own stuff, our own darkness, our own foibles, our own lies, our own truths. I mean, we're so busy pointing fingers at others who are rightfully guilty in many cases, but I don't know. It's like they become the... I don't know what I'm trying to say. I know how I feel. It's hard to articulate. I think the bottom line is... I want to know more about who I am by talking to people who have done things that I think if under certain circumstance, I could be that person. Does that even make sense? I hope it does. Depending on how I was raised, depending on whether or not I'm on drugs, depending on whether or not I'm mentally ill or have been severely abused or whatever. And I'm not saying any of those things are an excuse because absolutely not an excuse. Not an excuse. But it does create an understanding, you know? It, it's like I get it. I get why these people turn out the way they do or why certain people behave a certain way. Um, not everyone is in complete control of their being. In fact, many people aren't. So... Yeah, I don't know what that ramble is about. I'm just talking out loud here for you um, as I try and just figure out myself wh what I think about humans, <laughs> what we do, why we do it, the pain we're in, the pain we inflict, the purpose of it all. Yeah, I get the eye for an eye ideology but I don't think that it works. It doesn't solve what murdering one person versus another doesn't solve anything. And also something I think about too is the idea of the executioner, how many murders they've committed, sanctioned of course by the government, but death takes its toll no matter which direction you look. I think that the death penalty is disproportionate to people of color. And, I mean, there's a whole lot of thoughts I have on the matter, but I really wanted to have a conversation with Nathan. I learned about him through Ellis Armistead, who's a private investigator and somebody I interviewed on this show. And 
uh, Ellis and Nathan have maintained correspondence throughout the years. And Ellis mentioned to me that, you know, Nathan is, is a grown man. He spent a majority of his life in prison and he might be an interesting person to talk to. And of course, absolutely, I said yes. And so thank you to Ellis for helping to facilitate me connecting with Nathan. Thank you to Nathan as well for taking the time to talk with me. Although, as Nathan would put it, all he has is time. So, uh, but I still appreciate it. And I, I do believe that Nathan was honest with me in his thoughts and feelings. It would be interesting to have talked to a 19-year-old Nathan. I watched a lot of video and read a lot of articles. And uh, it sounds like who he was then is just a totally different person. It's a complicated issue, and since I'm not a person that really, I don't see things in black and white, I don't see things as binary, it's, uh, yeah, it's intriguing to me to have these kinds of conversations, and I hope that you find them intriguing as well, and I don't know what else to say about that. I'm sure this episode might cause a stir for some people. Um, there were obviously several lives lost, tragically, and uh, lives altered forever. And for the families of the victims, I mean, it's just incomprehensible how they try to go on with their lives, knowing that, that their loved ones are no longer around. Okay, well, that's heavy, yeah? So let's get into the, the other stuff, the usual suspects of the show, <laughs> which seem... You know, it, it's hard to pivot and not feel gross a little bit, but pivot I must. Hey Human Podcast can be found on social media under Instagram and Facebook. My personal social media, Susan Ruthism, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You can email me, Susan at HeyHumanPodcast.com. I will do my best to answer every single email in a timely fashion. I would love to hear from you. Whether this episode, for example, pisses you off or you found it interesting or whatever, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe. Uh, that's important, too. If you want to sign up for my mailing list or check out other things that I do, go to SusanRuth.com. Uh, I do music and art and all sorts of fun things. I've also been interviewed a few times, and those interviews are up there on the SusanRuth.com website. HeyHumanPodcast.com is where you will find everything about this show. You can check out the links page. Every episode has a pile of links that I find and put together to make things easier for you to learn more about the person I'm talking with and the things that we reference in the show. Definitely check that out. I think that's about it for the usual stuff. Uh, I want to mention a show that I watched this week that I found absolutely delightful. It's called How To with John Wilson. I highly recommend it. It's just, it's weird and so funny and awkward and beautiful and genius, really, in my humble opinion. So if you haven't checked that out, definitely go find that How To with John Wilson. Okay. Uh, I think that's about all that stuff. Let's get into this episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of this and for getting the word out and 
and for really hanging in there, even if you don't agree with some of the people that I interview or my thoughts or whatever, the fact that you're listening and that you are open-minded enough to at least hear what is being said. You don't have to agree with it. I mean, my gosh, that's certainly the truth. But, um, but thank you for sticking with me and checking things out. Stay well out there. Be safe out there. Take care of each other. Be kind. And uh, yeah. All right, here we go. Global Tel Link has a collect call for you. Except for approved attorney calls, this call may be monitored or recorded. Global Tel Link prepaid call from Nathan Biller. An inmate at a Colorado correctional facility. To accept this call, press 5 now. To decline this call, thank you for using Global Tel Link. Hello? Yeah, I called a little too early. Or are you good? Uh, it was a couple minutes early, but you know what? It's fine. I appreciate you calling. Thank you. Yeah, no problem, no problem. Are you ready to begin? Yeah. Nathan Dunlap, welcome to Hey Human. And you're you're in Colorado, correct? Yeah, I'm in Colorado, Colorado State Penitentiary. How long have you been there? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Let's see. I first arrived in May 1996. I left in, uh, let's see... Uh, sometime, I can't remember exactly when, but I left sometime in 2011. I went to Sterling Correctional Facility, which is still in Colorado. And then I returned to CSP in like, I don't know, September, October of uh, 2015, I think it was. And I've been here since. The whole of your life, really? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I think I've, I've now spent more time in, in prison than I have on the streets. <laughs> So let's go back. I usually start these conversations with childhood. Tell me about your upbringing. Okay. Well, let's see. I was, I was born in Waukegan, Illinois, but my really earliest memories are living in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. That's my earliest memories. Uh, my my uh, mom's husband uh, worked for Federal Express, so he, well, he actually used to be a teacher. He started off as a teacher, but then he worked for Federal Express. We, we got job at Federal Express, we had transferred a lot, so we wanted to move from Tennessee to Michigan. I lived in Michigan for, I think, about a year and a half, two years, and then I moved out here to Colorado during the summer, right before my fifth grade school year. Colorado since fifth grade, yeah. Were they good parents, bad parents? Like, did you, did you get along with them? There's no such thing as a perfect parent. All parents make mistakes. <laughs> uh, and then it's like, um, you know, you hear what, what you, you hear about other people's parents, and you're like, oh, those parents are real lenient, or those parents are real, real uh, bad, and stuff like that. And I've, I've listened to other people's conversations about talk about their parents and stuff. I've, I've heard people with parents who are worse than mine, and I've heard people with parents who I could argue are better than mine. But at the same time, it's like even those parents may be better than mine. Were they the type of parents that I needed? You know, would, could they have raised me and my siblings? Um, for me, let's see. My mom was as good a parent as I think she could be. I have no complaint. I have no complaints. Like I said, she made mistakes. But overall, I have no complaints. Uh, as far as her husband goes, um, he was good up until a point, and then he became abusive towards me. And then, of course, I learned some other stuff about him that just uh, turned me away from him, period. Just, just stop 
Like what? Um, for for me, I learned that he uh, sexually abused my sister. Oh, yeah. And so that's, and that and that's just a no no for me. So. Yeah, I mean that would definitely for sure. Yeah. Did your mom stay married to him? Uh, yeah. Uh, long story short, uh, let's see. When my mom found, uh, my mom didn't find out about the abuse he did on me and my sister until, gosh, I was, I think, 17 years old or something like that. And um, she, uh, she, I guess you could say they separated at that point in time. Um, and then uh, I caught my case. And when I caught my case, I actually told her, you know, go back, you know, go back to him. So they, they, they were together until they died, or until, yeah, until he died or whatever. He died first, and then she died a year later. Why did you tell her to go back to him? Uh, because... In my opinion, she didn't have, any, she didn't have anybody like, take care of her. She, didn't have, she was alone. Once I got arrested, it was like, who was going to take care of her when she got older? And I didn't want, I didn't want her to be alone. Yeah, I know my sister was already living on her own. My brother was about to go off to uh, college and everything. And then I was, you know, I was going through my case. I'd been arrested, so I was going through my case. And I just didn't want her to be alone. And, you know, he was, he, he loved her and everything like that. And, uh, I just, you know, she, she's a parent. I think when you're a parent, you know, your marriage comes second and your children come first in some cases. And, you know, I, I think she left him, not necessarily because she, uh, not could be wrong, but I don't think she left him because she didn't love him anymore or because, you know, he had uh, mistreated her or anything like that. She left him because he had mistreated her children. And so, you know, we were out the picture. I was in, I don't know, I was okay with it, plain and simple. I was okay with it, and, you know, she went back home. Do your siblings come to visit you in, in prison? My brother, I think he came to visit me a couple of times when I was in the county. And then uh, I've seen him once I've been incarcerated because he, he wanted to go to college and move out of state. My sister, she used to visit me a lot when I was in the county. And then after my case was over, done when she moved out of state. And uh, she's visited me once since I've been uh, in DLC. Uh, and yeah, that's it for that. Do the people that you're in incarcerated with them did they become more family uh over time oh no 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 <laughs> no i would never i like well, i said i would never but uh i probably developed close friendships with uh maybe two or three guys since i've been incarcerated but i would never consider any of these guys my with the session maybe the three guys who i befriended you know uh nobody else i've has to come close to being well considered family or uh, secondary family or whatever like that. Sure, uh, I I read that your mom had dealt with a lot of mental illness issues. So for me, for for the longest of times, I did not believe in mental, in mental illness. As a matter of fact, uh, prior to 1997, uh, I didn't think there was anything such thing as mental illness. I think I thought well, the only mental illness that I believed in, so to speak, was. Um, was uh, schizophrenia. That's the only. That was the only thing I kind of believed. In. And when I say I believe in schizophrenia, that's not to imply that I actually knew what schizophrenia was. But that's that's the closest thing that you know I believe as far as mental illness. I thought that was crazy. You, you, 
anything outside of that, uh, I didn't believe in. Mm-hmm. I didn't believe in depression. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're depressed, well then, you know, go eat some ice cream and get happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's how I felt you had control, you had control over it. So that's how I felt about mental illness up until 1997. Um, I witnessed my mom get hospitalized uh, two, or three, two or three different occasions when I was growing up. attempt to do singling you out above your siblings. intense question but I am curious so the other day I was having breakfast with a friend of mine and a woman walked by who clearly had schizophrenia she was 
very upset and talking out loud. And and my friend and I had a conversation about how it seems that sometimes the people that have severe mental illness, where they're hearing voices, what if what if they're hearing messages somewhere where we can't hear them, and it's driven it's driven them insane because. I can't imagine what that's like to be witness to so many voices that what if your mom had some sort of precognition of the events that were going to transpire in like she knew somehow that in December of 1993 you were going to do this thing and so like in that weird schism of time and space and mental illness what if she saw something Interesting. Did you ever ask her later on in life, or did you, was that just something that became unspoken? No, I didn't. I didn't learn about any of this as far as her singling me out and all this good stuff. I didn't learn any of this until I was incarcerated. Uh, there was, you know, basically they were trying to figure out, you know, they do all this mitigation stuff at my trial and all this stuff, trying to figure out how I came out the way I came out and stuff like that. And you know, one of the things they focus on is abuse and stuff like that. And, by the time this stuff came out, uh, I had figured out that I had a mental disorder and stuff like that. So this this is important to try to make the links and stuff between my mental disorder because it's hereditary and my mom's mental disorder. What disorders are you diagnosed with? Oh, I have I have bipolar disorder, like my mother. Okay, I imagine that they keep that regulated while you're incarcerated. Uh, funny story. I didn't uh, like I said. Uh, they didn't they didn't start uh, they. They didn't start treating me for my bipolar disorder until I think 2000, 2001. Uh, come to find out, they they knew I had this had this disorder, but they didn't want to treat me for it because they felt by diagnosing me and treating me for it, it would help my like legal legal matters. Oh, uh, interesting. Oh, it was it was just it was all it's messed up. That is messed up. That's really messed up. On the night that. Everything went down and, and you killed those people. Do you think that you were out of your mind? There's no question. There's no, it took me years to figure this out and learn this. But yeah, as I now know that yeah, I was in the midst of a manic episode at the time of my arrest. I've been experiencing a manic episode probably a month or two. So I started to experience a manic episode probably about a month or two before I got arrested. And slowly but surely just got worse and worse and finally I got arrested and, and then I wound up uh, I don't know about a week or two after I had got arrested I wound up going into a depressive episode and then um, and then I don't know two, week, two or three weeks after that I wound up going into a manic episode again but this time I went from just a pure manic episode to a manic episode with psychotic features and I wound up in a state hospital uh, I got arrested in December 1973 I wound up in the state hospital in February of 1994, I think it was. I believe I'm manic at my first, I've had more before then, but as far as since I was 19 years old, my first manic episode probably started in probably around October, maybe even a month before then. Mm-hmm. And that, that manic episode lasts from October until probably January. And in January, 
Nobody around you recognized this to try and get you help? Uh, well, the thing, uh, my mom, in turn, again, found this later on down the road, but my mom uh, suspected or knew that I was a manic uh, when I was on the streets prior to my arrest. Unfortunately, because of my how I feel about mental disorder, I didn't believe mm-hmm. that I had a mental disorder all that stuff. Mm-hmm. She, knew she, could, she knew she couldn't talk to me about it. She knew she couldn't uh, make me believe that I had the disorder. So she just, what she thought was that my symptoms would be similar to hers, but it turned out they didn't. When I wound up in the state hospital, my mom again, she was like, she went to the state doctors, told them what was wrong with me and stuff like that. State doctors was like, no. My mom was describing her symptoms and stuff like that. In the, in the end, it was discovered, you know, that they, they knew what was wrong with me. They, they, they knew what was wrong with me, they just didn't want to diagnose me because uh, it would help it would help uh, my case. Having a mental illness would be medication in my case. You know, like I say in the end in the end it came out. It just that's what it was. Even though I, you know, experienced these hallucinations and stuff like that, when I got out of the state hospital one while tried to tell me what was wrong with me, I was in denial about it and I like, I know I, just, I must have just got stressed out, even though I didn't believe that myself. That's why I just told myself because I was like, I, I do not want to be like my mother. I do not want to have a, a mental illness. My attorneys were appointed to represent me for my 35C hearing. And I told them, I said, look, something, something's wrong. You know, I'll talk to whatever doctor you want me to talk to. So they went and got doctors and had them come check me out and everything. And they came back, well, here's bipolar. I went, you know, I went to my ears and listened to what everybody had to say. And so then what happened is uh, they wanted to put me on medication. And the funny thing about that, I think the only reason why they put me on medication was because uh, I had suicide attempts. And they can't, in, in this particular facility, it's hard to watch you. And so I think the only reason why they put me on medication was so that in the event I died, they can say they would treat me for depression. And so I think they're just trying to save their, I can't remember the name of the drugs, but the, they're SSRIs or something. Yeah, sure, sure. Inhibitors. And, but anyway, they had me on those for for almost a year, and then uh, I stopped taking them without them know, without them knowing. And I went in like every three months or something, they pull you in to check on your medication and stuff like that, see how you're doing. And so then I went in, talked to the doctor and everything. He tells me I'm doing fine. You know, he you know goes through his little checklist and everything. Lets me know I'm doing okay, and I tell him I'm doing okay. And he's like, uh, well, you know, I want to continue the medication. I'm like, well, I haven't been taking the medication. He's like, what? And I said, yeah, I'm like, I haven't been taking the medication. For How did you now. get around it? Don't they watch you take it? Uh, no, I mean, yes and no. 
Were you so suicidal as a teenager too? Yes, I did try a couple times when I was a kid. When I was a juvenile, seventh and eighth grade, I tried a couple times. In December of '93, when you went into the Chuck E. Cheese and you were having a manic episode with psychotic ideations, you're not in your no, right. No, 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 no. I was not. I did not have psychotic features in, uh, in 1993. I was just manic. What do you think was the thing then that pushed you into committing the crimes? Uh, just mainly it caused you to think and think and feel a certain way. It caused you uh, for me. It had me feel like I was a, this this gangster, this thug. I think about a month, yeah, about a month before this uh, the, the crimes of Chuck E. Cheese, uh, me and some of these guys that hung around, we got robbed, and we got robbed by how do I say, we got robbed by the homeboys of the guys I was hanging around with, friend, and I learned that their friend had lied about something, and he was not trying to help us get our stuff back from the, his, you know, his homies or whatever. It was my intention to go cause this guy's death. Somehow it got in my head that uh, if I, okay, if I shot the, their homeboys, and I was going to need to shoot them too, my homies too, if they had, if they got, a, if they got a, upset with what I was doing. And so somehow I got in my head that I need to, uh, test myself and to go shoot somebody else to see if um, I had to, I guess, heart or whatever to shoot my own homeboys. So that's how what Chuck E. Cheese evolved. That's how it came about. It was more of us. If I can, if I can do Chuck E. Cheese and I can go shoot my homeboys in necessary. Now that you are medicated the way you are and regulated the way you are and all that kind of stuff, have you attempted to or I don't know what the rules are or if you would even do that, but to reach out to the families of the people you, you killed? It's, uh, no, because uh, the, the way that works or whatever is the victims, the victims' family members have to be wanting to talk to you. They have to initiate the contact. Would you want them to? Yes, I, I, yeah, I would love to talk to them. Uh, see, it, I would love to talk to them because the story that they have is just incorrect. When I say I would love to talk to them, it would, it's more in the sense of I would like to explain to them what really happened. Uh, maybe, maybe it would help them. Maybe you know, it, I, would, I want to explain to them what really happened and why. Um, I think, I think, me personally, I think it would help them heal and, and stuff like that. But you know, who am I? You know, that maybe they just don't want to do that. It's you know, I can't force myself or force my opinions and beliefs on somebody else, but. I'm, for me, I, I'm open to talking to anybody, you know, that's, you know, cause I, I don't, like, you know, what I did for was messed up, it was messed up, and, you know, I don't know, everybody's different, everybody's just, some people, you know, they want, like, like, to know what happened and why and all that good stuff, but, and some people don't, they just want to just go down, so. How have you come that's, to terms with everything? How do you deal with the fact that you took four lives and hurt somebody? Well, one, it was when I found out I had my polar in it and the connection they had to what I had done, it was like a relief for me. For me, it was like, okay, I'm not this monster. You know, because like, at first for a while, I was running around thinking I was this monster and I had conflicting feelings, but I was, but I was like convincing myself that, okay, I must, this, I must be this monster, I must have this evil in me that, uh, you know, comes out every now and again that I can somehow control or can't control or whatever. 
now I know I deal with idea, I understand it. And so that that's like the first step for me. I don't be honest, I really don't know if I have dealt with it. Uh, I just try not to think about it. I, I try to I just try not to think about it. Because I think maybe when I actually think about what I've done it's gonna like really hurt and you know, I'm try, I guess I think mentally I'm trying to avoid thinking about it and block it out and stuff like that. You don't think that thinking about it and talking about it will bring a, a, a healing in a way? I mean, obviously you can't bring back For the people. Um, yeah. Well, uh, no, because I'm not, I'm not dealing with it in an emotional sense. I'm not dealing with it. I'm not dealing with it. But, it, but it still I'm lives in you, you know? It's still in you. Yeah, and Yeah. No, I agree, I agree with you on that, but it's one of those, I guess, I... I got a good barrier <laughs> right now, and maybe one day that barrier is going to break, and then I'll, and you know, you know, I've, I've, I've had this conversation with my mom and a few of my friends and stuff like that, and yeah, I, at this right now, it's just I'm not, I'm not ready to deal with it, and so I just don't talk about it, or not talk, I don't, I just don't deal with it. I'm not trying to, because I, I think part of it has to do with the fact that where I'm at, you know, it's, it's not, I'm not in a place where. Uh, I guess you could be emotional or whatever. Or you got to have a place where you can really heal and be open or something about it. So I just, I just don't, I just don't deal with it by simple, simple as that. You say, you know, you've pushed down the feelings and you don't think about it because to you, you feel like that person who committed those crimes was a different person from who you are today. And on many levels, I completely understand that. And again, it's that problem. It, wait, wait, let me let me finish. Let me finish really quick. Um, that I understand. I understand that on one level because just sentencing basically children to death or to life imprisonment when they haven't even fully formed as human beings, their brains not even formed, all that stuff. That is that that's like those are different people. Like who I was at nineteen is a million miles away from who I am now. I didn't murder anyone, but still, the the concept is there. So, for you, over the years, you've spent now more time in prison than not in prison, that I cannot imagine that the remorse hasn't come up and that feeling, even though you want to be like, that was somebody else, how do you mitigate that pain as... Because you seem like a, that's the thing, is you seem like a logical, thoughtful human being, you know? And logical, thoughtful human beings have empathy. I can't, it's it's hard for me to believe that you are so without that. Okay, first let me explain something. My 19-year-old self would never have committed this crime. My 19 normal self would never have committed this crime. My 19 self with a mental illness would commit this crime and did commit this crime. My, I'm 47 years old right now. My 47 year old self would never have committed that crime. It just wouldn't happen. Normal self. But if I am manic at 47 right now, if I am manic, then it is possible that I can commit that crime because if the mania that has me thinking is not myself, me personally, it's the mania that has me thinking off the wall stuff. It has me prepared to go through stuff that I, that I normally would not do. Now, when, like I said, when 
19 committed crime, I experienced remorse. Almost, I experienced remorse almost, I experienced remorse and regret uh, in the middle of committing the crime, but I was able to like, um, snap out of it, so to speak, and, and go on and continue to commit the crime. Um, at, uh, within, I don't know, five or 10 minutes after I committed the crime, I felt remorse. Again, I, I told myself, no, this isn't right. You, this is not the correct kind of emotion you're supposed to have experience. You, you committed premeditated murder. You don't, remorse is not a, not a, a not of a, not the emotion you're supposed to experience when you do something like that. And, you know, I, I was manic at the time, so I think the mania actually helped. You're, you're a gangster, you know, you're supposed to do, you're supposed to think this way, so don't, you know, get, out, get off that remorse trip. And then, I guess they, then the uh, mania went away after sometime after I arrested, and the remorse came. And at that time, uh, that's when I was experiencing anger and stuff like that. So I was able to hide, and, and uh, along with the anger, and because I believed it, you know, you commit a premeditated murder, you can't be remorseless. So it's like I convinced myself, and then, like I said, and with the, because I was experiencing anger from other people, it was easy for me to kind of hide the remorse and forget about the remorse. But what about 47-year-old you? Because now I'm talking with and, you now. Right. What does that right. person well, feel? You know, throughout time, leading up to 47, is I would experience remorse every now and again. And eventually what happened is that I, but what was happening is I was experiencing remorse, but at the same time, I was like, because um, it's like, a two, I'd say about 2000, I was experiencing remorse. But I was still experiencing the anger, anger and stuff like that. And I, and I was saying, you know, somebody would say, I'd be, I'd be feeling bad about something I did. Oh, I was feeling bad about what I did. But then I hear somebody say something and I'd be like, oh, you know, forget them or whatever. You know, I'm glad I did or whatever, something like that. But then I, for me personally, I was like, you know what? I'm tired of hating. Because that's what it brought out. I was hating people. And I was tired of hating. And so I just decided to stop. That's like sort of started my journey as far as like just saying, okay, Then, and then at the same time, but around the same time that happened, that's also when I found out about, that I have bipolar and how it works and stuff. And, it, and bipolar explained why I was having these conflicting feelings of one minute I'm angry and not remorseful, and another minute I am remorseful. And it also explains how, for, for, to me, it explained to me how how uh, my belief that you could, how I, how I could commit premeditated murder, but they feel remorseful about it. So, so I'm, like, I'm just want to make sure I'm getting this clear. So, what you're saying is, now that you're a 47 year old you and you have an understanding of the mental illness, that you have set aside the anger for being, for people being angry with you, and now you are capable of the empathy and the remorse and understanding that the victims' families are also victims. Yeah, uh, and, yeah. And they have, and they have every, and they, and they have every right to be angry and, and express their anger and. When the, the governor said no more death row and you were taken off of death row and, and life without parole was the replacement, that how angry the victims' families were that they felt that justice wasn't being served. But it's interesting because you also said a life in prison is its own hellscape. And, and so in, in that regard, 
it's a worse punishment to you than than death. From day one, I've never, I've never been afraid of death penalty. I've never, I, I, I'm more afraid of a life sentence. I don't want to die. You know, I don't, I don't want a life sentence. I don't, I don't understand this concept of, uh, of, of, uh, a life sentence. I don't understand it. I don't understand. I just don't understand it. I just, it's just something I just don't. I don't get it. I, I don't get it. So you would rather be put to death and spend your life in prison. I'd rather die than spend the rest of my life in prison. Okay. I, I, I'm not into. I'm not going. I wouldn't let them execute me. That's how I feel about it. Do you think you'll take your own life while you're in there? I have no idea. I have no idea. And your sentence was death plus 108 years. Yeah, plus plus another 75 years for another robbery case. <laughs> for a robbery case? Yeah, they uh they they manufactured a, a robbery conviction for me so they could use that to enhance my sentence to give me a death penalty. And uh, I got arrested for uh, the Chase case. And then about like I think about a year after my arrest, they charged me in connection with a robbery case in some other of some other place and for, for the purpose that they want to use that robbery case to is uh, an aggravating factor had you committed that crime no I did not did you did you admit your guilt for the Chuck E. Cheese murders no no uh, no uh, I had not admitted my guilt for Chuck E. Cheese how come because uh, I was trying to go home even though you knew you had done it yeah, correct. If you could go back in time, at what age would you go back? Because I know, I'm imagining that you're with your right mind now, and you would say, oh, I'd go back and yeah. tell the 19-year-old the not to walk into that Chuck E. Cheese. If you were to go back, where do you think the first place you would go to talk to yourself? Um, for me, truthfully, I would, I, I would actually have to go back... I think I would actually could I, if I had to go back in time because I couldn't go back in 50 because the, the issue is I didn't believe I was mentally ill so I would have to go back to like right before uh, I mean, not right before not like right immediately before but I had to go back to you know probably in a month or two before um, before the turkey cheese the crowd of turkey cheese because there was a there was a moment there was, there was a moment like in November where I found myself saying to myself Nathan what are you doing you know this you're, you're doing what you say you would never do when you like when I did my juvenile stuff because it, it turns out I was mad when I was juvenile it was the same kind of thinking and everything and so but you know I returned to normal and everything like that and I was like you know I'll, I'll never do this again uh, I just, this is the way I want to go and stuff like that. And so, um, being up to Chuck E. I started doing this same, some of that same behavior. And I found, I found you know, myself asking myself, Nathan, hey, what are you doing? You're, you're doing the stuff that you say you never do. And if I come back at that moment and say, hey, the reason why you're doing the stuff you're doing is because of this, you have a man together, you have bipolar, and this is what's going on, I, might, I, I think I would have listened. I, I would have I, I listened. I, I think I would have listened. And actually got help. And that's the thing for me is it, 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 
had I gotten help, it's not like, it, and when I say gotten help, it wasn't that somebody offered or hadn't, it wasn't that somebody hadn't offered me help. It was just that had I, me personally, made the say, okay, something's wrong, I need to get help. Had I made that choice back when I was, uh, you know, right leading up to cheese or even when my mom, my mom first told me she thought I had a bipolar when I was uh, in the seventh or eighth grade. And I, you know, I refused to believe it then. But had I, you know, listened and gotten help, then, then Chuck would never happen. Chuck Cheese would never happen. And if I gotten help early enough, then even the robbery I committed as a juvenile would never have happened. Do you believe in the death penalty yourself? I know that's a really weird question to ask somebody that's, you know, in, in prison and had received the death penalty, but I am curious. Yeah. Yes and no. And things like, I just, my natural instinct is if you do something, if you do something to me or one of mine, I want to do something to you. That's my, that's my gut reaction. That's just how I am. And so if you kill one of mine or rape one of mine or do something, uh, yeah, I, my gut reaction is to, to want to go do something to you, including kill you or whatever. So, yeah, that's my gut reaction. If I want to, if my gut feeling is to go out and murder somebody for murder one of mine, then a law by sin should have that same avenue. Uh, so the idea of having the death penalty is, I guess, okay with me. But the way they're going about doing it and people's attitude about it is, is off. Because I know for a fact that my me wanting to get revenge and stuff like that, I know it's wrong. It is wrong, plain and simple. So, even though it's, it's legal, it's still wrong to go after somebody to uh, give them a death penalty. So you can't, you know, you can't sit up and say that I'm an evil guy and then think of yourself as not a naive person because you seek the death penalty. So that's, you know, you can't have it both ways. Another thing is that um, they're talking about premeditation and stuff and that what I did is just premeditated murder and, and it's so evil and disgusting and all this stuff. Well, shit, uh, the, the, the thought and the the whole thing that comes with the death penalty, that's so premeditated, it's not even funny. And that's, that's to me, that's even more sick than what anybody anybody else can do as far as premeditated murder goes. Um, another thing is um, the process in which they seek the death penalty is just, is flawed. So, mm. for that reason right there, it's, it's just, it's, you know, that's, that's the problem with that. But uh, if they can fix it, if they can fix it so that it's, it's, it's fair, so to speak, then okay. But at the same time, even when you say, even if you fix it so that it's fair, so to speak, which I don't think they can ever do, but if they fix it so that it's fair, then you say, okay, but you, st- you still got to recognize that you're no better than the person you're trying to execute because you're doing the same exact thing that he just did. I don't want to hear you talking about how, how much of a good person you are, how much of a Christian you are. No, you're just as evil as the person that you're trying to kill, as far as I'm concerned. Were you raised religious, or do you have that now? Oh, no, I was raised a Baptist. I was raised Baptist. Actually, I'm a Christian. Uh, do you practice while you're incarcerated? I practiced the same way I practiced when I was on the streets. I wasn't uh, I wasn't into reading the Bible and stuff like that when I was on the streets. I attended services when I was on the streets, but the older I got, the less uh, services 
mean, I grew up in the church. I went to church every Sunday, Bible study, and everything. I did that all the way up until, gosh, uh, I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, I'm kind of burnt out. For me, I got I got the gist of the religion, and, uh, and you know, I think I've done enough. <laughs> Let's talk about life, life in lockup. Tell me what you what's okay. your day to day like. Well, now uh, I work. Uh, I work uh, four four days a week for about six hours in the kitchen. Uh, uh, I, I cook two days, and on other days I work in a dye room where I just prepare, like uh, I basically put food in the tray <laughs> for people who are on special diets for religious reasons or medical reasons or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and other than that. Do you go to the library there? Or? Yeah, I hate reading, so reading's not my... <laughs> I hate reading since I was a kid. Uh, so, but, but every now and again, I'll come across something I'd like to read. And right now, uh, I, I like Star Wars, so I'm reading other Star Wars books. i got like about 10 more books to read, and I'll be done with that. Why do you hate reading? Just, uh, since I was a kid, I just hate reading. I know how, I know how to read and everything like that. <laughs> it's, just, it's just not something I like doing. Even though I know I should, I know I should do it because I know it's educational and, and it, you know it's a good way to learn things. But I just, I just don't like doing it. I know that you're not getting out. Like we know this, but if you were to get out tomorrow, what would be the first uh, thing you'd do? Uh, just go visit family and friends. Just go visit family and friends. Hang out with family and friends, and after that, go find a job. <laughs> find something that's going to be productive and try to, you know try to make up for, you know, do something that's going to try to make up for what I did. Do you mean like volunteering or? Uh, no, I just try to work with, 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 like within the system, try to, you know, uh, like restorative justice, like try to do something within that kind of area right there. So you said that you don't really know a whole lot of, like you kind of keep to yourself, you have a couple of close friends. I would not call an incarcerated person a close friend, but they're the closest, I mean, I've got a few guys that I'm kind of close to, but. Why would you not say that they are? Because for me to say somebody is my friend it means a lot. Just in it, it just and it just it just means a lot. I don't know how to explain it to you. It's it's one of those things where if you're my friend, you 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 understand what it means to be my friend. Mm-hmm. And right now, I just can't. This is a penitentiary. I just haven't established that kind of relationship with anybody. Where I would say that they're my friend. Do you get along with the guards? Uh, they're, I mean, they're here. Yeah. <laughs> as, long as, they me, as long as they don't bother me, I'm cool. I'm fine. I'm, 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 I'm not, I'm not a, you know, a hate, a hate person or whatever. Just, you know, this is, this is, to me, this is life in the sense of, uh, you know, there are people on the streets you got to deal with. So it's the same thing here. I got to deal with people. I wasn't at my door talking to everybody, so <laughs> I like I was, I'm a very uh, asocial person, so uh, I'm okay with being alone. <laughs> some people need company, some people don't. I don't need company. Well, that's probably kept you sane in prison. I'm, I'm assuming, especially I, in isolation. I yeah, I think that's why one of the reasons why I was able to be okay.
do you remember the moment that you got sentenced? The biggest thing that sticks out in my sentencing, uh, I mean, it, it was what it was. What had me going was that the um, uh, district attorney was basically talking shit, in my opinion. He was he was just uh, like he can't he, he said I malingered uh, my my stay at the hospital, and that was just ridiculous. And and that's that's what just started everything from there. It, you know, he, he, to me, he's talking shit. He was like, "Oh, you're malingering." I'm like, "Okay, yeah, right." You know, that's it was that was a, unfortunately um, the victims' families were there, and unfortunately, people it just plain I was responding to what was being presented to me, and he was talking trash to me, so I went right back out. And to me, it seemed like he was trying to say things that were hurt, trying to be hurtful to me, and fact of the matter is uh, they just you can't talk trash to me and try to hurt my feelings and stuff because I can always hurt your feelings back and, uh, and unfortunately I, I do have the you know you're, you're throwing little jabs I got big blows that I can throw at you I can hurt you with I can hurt you worse than you can hurt me with your words from what Go I ahead. could really Go ascertain from the articles it sounded to me like they were trying to make a statement that you didn't have mental illness. And I read it and somewhere like, oh, there was a doctor that said, Nathan said, oh, I'm going to ride this f- fake, basically, mental illness. And and I thought, well, that's really interesting because it's pretty clear that that mentally you were not of your right mind in the moment, even though there was, I think even through our conversations, some premeditation and that you said, you know, you were kind of acting out about what you would do to your rivals and things. I didn't know I was uh, hallucinating or delusional or, you know, experiencing psychotic symptoms until uh, until I started coming down, which, like, last month I was there. Mm-hmm. That's when I realized, okay, I've been, I've been hallucinating, I've been delusional. and But I, I didn't say nothing to the doctors because I didn't want to be in the hospital. I didn't, I didn't want to be in the state hospital. They're, the doctors were always taking statements that I said or said, Statements that I say or, or do or anything I did or whatever, and trying to make it sound like okay, he's faking it or whatever. So, without, I, like I said, I, I, I can't. It's been so long since I've had these hearings where I they, where they specify specific things that I said. But at no time, I, I can tell you for a fact that when I got to the hospital, I did not want to be at the state hospital. I didn't want to be in the state hospital. I didn't believe I was mentally ill. There's and so. I wanted out of the state hospital. I can I remember telling them one time that uh, yeah, I'm, uh, uh, I, said, I think I said something along the lines of I won't play crazy or whatever because I felt like if I say that, then that will make them get me out of the hospital. I was willing to do just about anything to get out of the state hospital. So you know, saying that I was playing crazy was going to get me out of the hospital. Okay, yeah, I'm playing crazy. Let me out. And if you guys keep me in the state hospital, then I'm going. So I'm just I just want to reiterate that to make sure I'm understanding. So you're in order to try and get out of the hospital, you were saying I'm pretending to be this way because you were hoping that the doctors would then say he's pretending, get him out of the hospital. Yeah. When you were picked up after after the Chuck E. Cheese, uh, did you? know what you had done were you aware when they were picking you up or were you still in the state of not being aware of what you had done mania all it mania does just changes it changed for me it just changed my uh, personality so to speak 
it, it, it changed my personality, plain and simple. That's what me and you did. So it doesn't, it didn't, it didn't incapacitate me. It didn't, uh, it didn't. Uh, I don't know how to explain. You it. weren't a werewolf where you know, the moon comes out and you wake up in the morning and don't know that you were a werewolf. You understood. Right. I, I, like I say, it, what I did was very premeditated. Very premeditated. But it was it was it was premeditated, and it was based. My behavior was based upon thinking that normally thinking and emotions or whatever that normally isn't mine. Right. I understand what you're saying now. I just I wanted to clarify that. I'm just trying to wrap my head around it. I uh, how does yeah. one, I guess, look in the mirror of oneself after something like that? Once you're down, when, and even though you have an understanding yeah. of, I was in this other place. I did these things, um, and my normal self doesn't behave that way but clearly it happened how do you well, deal how do you deal with the repercussions of that in your in your own mind of course when i come down then i'm like nathan what did you what you just do um you know i i mean i justify what i did i again what well, is a part of your personality this is this is your dark side this is you have control over this what happened was after i come when i came down i was feeling bad about what i did and I was in, you know, I had a conversation with myself, so to speak, and it was like, uh, well, Nate, you can't commit premeditated murder. My personal belief is that you cannot commit premeditated murder and then feel bad about it afterwards. Because, you know, you already thought about it, so you can't feel bad about it. So even though I was having these bad feelings about what I'd done, I basically confessed myself, like, no, you don't feel these emotions, so, you know, get rid of them. And then uh, what helped me, so to speak, I didn't get rid of them, but what helped me, um, I guess, bury them and not recognize them was the fact that I was receiving so much hate and anger from people. And so when I was receiving this hate and anger from people, I was taking that and, and sort of feeding off of it. And so it was like, oh, okay, well, you hate me for what I did, well, then your people deserve to die then, or it's a good thing I did that. And that's how I, like, I don't know, deflected, I guess you might say. Uh, and, and I didn't, I, because I was feeling all this hate and anger, and I was in turn getting angry and everything like that. I never got a chance to uh, deal with the uh, deal with the remorse. Basically, I, I just it was it was covered up. That must be the the press that talks about. Oh, he was mocking the families because you were in a state of of denial of your emotions of the remorse. If if I'm understanding you correctly, so somebody like if I was the victim's family or or anybody in the John Q public, to hear somebody say, "Oh well, they deserve to die," I think that would probably constitute mocking behavior. Uh, well, I don't know what article you read, but it, it, this has been it's been so long since my hearings and stuff. But no, I've never I've never mocked mocked any of the victim's families. Uh, I know I went off, and when I got sentenced, I know I went off in the courtroom about that, uh, but that wasn't, I wasn't, yeah, I've never mocked the victim's families, nothing like that. Uh, they, uh, I know that people probably interpreted my actions and stuff, you know, in the wrong way, but no, I've, I've never, ever mocked the victim's families. As it, with the, within the walls of the prison, what would you like to see changed? Oh, gosh. What do you mean, like, living conditions and stuff? Uh, well, see, uh, DLC is probably starting this, this normalization stuff. So for me, with 
within the Colorado Department of Corrections. What I would like for where I'm at right now, uh, the incentive unit where I'm at is not up to par. Their living conditions are not like up to par with the living conditions of general populations or or other incentive units in other facilities. So for me, what I would like to see change is get us up to par. Get us up, get us up to par with the rest of the, what's, what's going on in other facilities. Mm. So that's what I would like to see. I mean, gosh, that's a real hard question to answer because this is prison. Yeah, <laughs> like, I get that. I mean, I, mean, I love my freedom, you know. <laughs> I, want to, I, want to, I want to go home night passes or something, you know. <laughs> but I have, to be, you know, I have to be reasonable. This is, this is prison, so there, there are certain liberties and stuff that are going to be taken, certain restrictions that are going to be taken, you know. So, I don't, you know, that's, that's just a, kind of a hard question to uh, <laughs> I, I know you want to go home, but this is, and again, this is like a tough question, but do you yeah. think you deserve to go home? Do I deserve to go home? I can't say I deserve to go home. Because the laws are the laws. I think there's something wrong with the laws, though. I was 19 years old at the time, at the time of my crime. And then on top of that, I was in the midst of a mental episode. I was mentally ill. I did, I committed a crime that I, that I wouldn't have done had I not been having a mental breakdown, so to speak. I'm not, you know, prisons, we're going to get into prisons is not supposed to be for punishment. It's supposed to be for re- rehabilitation, all that good stuff. So why not give me, why not give me a chance to work my way out? And this isn't just for me. This is for other people, too. I mean, like, um, I'm sure you've heard about the juvenile uh, bills and all that stuff that, you know, that they, Colorado used to send this juvenile's life without parole. Yeah, life without parole. I know, yeah. Yeah, they, they changed it now. They're giving them opportunity. They recognize that one, their brains aren't developed whenever it is developed as adults, so they should be treated like adults. And, you know, give them a chance to, you know, they're giving them a chance to, uh, 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 to get better. To get out. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, there's this guy here. He's uh, in the military. And he, he was a part of this one unit that was just really out there just doing their job, doing what they were trying to do. And, plain and simple, he gets back here to the United States and they don't. They don't treat them. They don't, you know, this is a veteran, and they don't retrain them to work within, you know what I'm saying? They don't yes, it's a major problem. Yeah. And, that, and now he goes out and commits a crime, and now he got this big sentence, and it's like, where's the justice in that? Here's a guy that served our, served our country, was trained to kill, was trained to do all these things, and you bring them back here and just throw them in the mix. So it isn't just a... Um, it isn't just for me. I think it's just I think they need this whole uh, lock of people for the rest of their lives without giving them a chance to uh, get rehabilitated, giving them a chance to prove that they can actually go back into society and do something with themselves. I think it's just totally messed up. And as far as my situation goes, yeah, I think I think I deserve a chance. Uh, my issue, my I wasn't a bad guy. Like I said, I, I was I, man, I wasn't a bad guy at all. I was doing a lot of the right things. And it's just when you, uh, and if, when you do that mental illness in there, it is undiagnosed mental illness. It just messed everything up. Not only for me, but for lots of people's lives. I had somebody on the show who was bipolar, and he said that when he would go into his manic episodes, that he would end up in other states and had no idea even how he got there. And he thought he was a... Um, 
like he was a spy and that he had this mission to complete and he would travel yeah. from state to state. He had no recognition of getting there or anything like that, that that's how far away his, he became from his brain. No, it's a, uh, like I said, uh, it's, it's, I don't know. Yeah. Were you a, a drug yeah. user back then? A drug user? No, I can't say I was a drug user. I, I was a teenager, so I tried drinking alcohol. Sure. I did smoke some weed, uh, but I, I didn't like I didn't like taste alcohol, so I didn't uh, get involved in that. You know, I, you know, I, you know. Like I said, just I went to the parties, I drank it, and like I, said, I smoked some weed, but not enough to not enough to say that I was a spothead or you know. I mean, exactly. Marriage a lot. There's a lot of people with like, who were like, uh, we didn't know you drank, and we didn't know you smoked. I mean, and as a matter of fact, most of my friends, most of my friends, they were like, they wanted me to come join them at the party because I, I would be the designated driver because <laughs> I didn't have that kind of a problem. So. Well, I really appreciate you talking with me, Nathan. The thing that I think is so fascinating is I feel like so many people have this idea in their head. Oh, well, this person was capable of murdering four people and therefore they're a monster. And my argument is always, I think any of us are capable of doing anything. It's just a question of whether or not, you know, we do or whether the circumstance, how we're raised, who, what we're around. Did we get abused? Do we have mental illness? Do we have drug issues? There's like so many factors. And you brought up such a good point about the military guy who was trained to be a killer which is sanctioned and made okay and then brought back and put into a society but not deprogrammed. You know, there is a brainwashing that has to go on in order to create a killer because it's not necessarily, you know, we, you know we're raised like don't kill, don't do these things, don't, you know, be bad. But we all have that in us. The killer is in us already. This is a matter of, you know, what's going to bring it out. I think about like, this stuff all the time. I'm so fascinated by it. Since I was, I had a job when I was 13 years old. And because I, I was doing like a little neighborhood, you know, doing like quarrying lawns, mowing lawns and stuff like that. And because of that, I wanted to get a job when I was 14. And I started working at Birkin. So I was, I was doing yeah. the, the legal things. I was doing the right things. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not stupid. I was on my, you know, I was going to be an aeronautical engineer. So, you know, I was into computers. I was, I was. I went through the right thing. I had the ability to do the right thing. I was doing the right thing. It's just that for whatever reason, whenever this mania flared up, just a different thing to me. Well, Nathan, right. thank you uh, so much for being yeah. on the show. I really appreciate your time. I know that it's hard to navigate and all that, so thank you for making time for me. No problem. No problem. No problem at all. <laughs> if you need anything, just let me know. Thanks, Nathan. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks. Bye.